Marion McGowan is a producer with a global imprint, working across film, documentary, and television mediums. She is the principal of independent Australian production company McGowan Films, a company which develops, finances, and produces a variety of motion pictures. She is currently preparing for season 3 of the critically acclaimed Emmy and Critics' Choice nominee for Best Comedy Series and Golden Globe nominee for Best Television Series, Musical, or Comedy, The Great. McGowan has produced or executive produced international films such as Lillian's Story with Tony Collette, Two Hands with Rose Byrne and Heath Ledger, and Tony McNamara's The Rage in Placid Lake. Marion McGowan, welcome to the creative process. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. So we've been uh, binging on the great and uh, really enjoying this. Um, for, for you, must I think it's a decade-long process now. Just tell us a little bit about your journey and how you fell in love with it. Yes. Um, so Tony McNamara, the writer, and I have been working together for a very long time. Um, we first made a film in early 2000, 2003, something like that. But we'd been working together a bit before that as well. Anyway, after, uh, so in 2009, Tony wrote a play for the Sydney Theatre Company called The Great, which was the sort of core material of what became the television series. And at the time I was looking for um, a female orientated project, but in particular one in which the, the female character was not so much in control as affecting the world around her in a very, you know, whether it be a positive or a negative way. I mean, you know, there are, there are lots of interesting negative, negative female characters affect the world as well. Um, and this one appealed to me. It, it, the original play was in two parts. It was uh, the first part, which is essentially what happened in season one. Um, and then the second part took place some 20 years later uh, and was, in a sense, looking at the cost of your decisions, because in the, con you know, in the context of, of her gaining power, she lost the man that she loved and sort of paid an enormous emotional price for, for the choices that she made. So we then developed it originally. I optioned that play and we originally developed it as a feature film, which was what the sort of world I worked in at the time. Um, and we got, you know, it was a classic kind of independent film story. You know, I got it up, it fell over. I got it up, it fell over. We had different cast attached at different points, different director. And we sort of reached a point where we'd attached Nicholas Holt and Tony was actually going to direct at that particular point. And, you know, as many, you know, success always has many mothers. My memory is that that it was Elle Fanning's management team that suggested television. And given that Tony had spent a lot of time working in television up to that point, it just seemed like a thunderbolt because we'd struggled a great deal with trying to solve the third act of, this, of the feature film and changing, and changing um, sort of protagonist halfway through a story or two thirds of the way through a story is, is very difficult storytelling. Audiences struggle with it. You've got a younger actress and an older actress and all those sorts of things. So it just seemed like a bolt from the blue. And we went, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So we then adapted the screenplay or Tony wrote a sort of spec script based on the screenplay and that became the pilot episode. Well, I'm so glad, although I'm very curious about what that film format uh, version of it would be, but I'm so glad in a way that it took the 10 years of um, mature I mean I know it was a mature project as a play but because I think with television you have all this complexity that some characters might just have been notions if they were a film like like 
shadowy and we have to imagine. So I really love the complexity and nuance. You're absolutely right. I always remember watching Strictly Ballroom. Do you know the Baz Luhrmann's first feature film? He originally did that as a play at NIDA, which is our National Institute of Dramatic Arts, where he was training. They originally did it as a, as a sort of sort of sketch thing at the at NIDA, and then they did it as a play, and then they did it as a film. And I agree with you. There's a sort of there's a process that occurs in that sort of consideration process that really deepens an idea and deepens the characters. And that's absolutely true because. There's a lot of characters that weren't in the play that are in the show. And there are a lot of characters that were in the play that are in the show. And they're much more complex characters now than they were just because of the amount of time you get to spend with them, the amount of sort of action you get to get for them to play with. So it's, yeah. It's almost like a rehearsal for a play, but then the final format is on television. Um, but also just online audiences are so much greater than even for you might have for a blockbuster. Um, the, so the reach is really great for people can, to take time to fall in love with it and hear about it. Yeah, very true. Very true. There's so many challenges I can imagine this, it, this kind of high wire act between comedy, the high stakes of the drama and the way you address sexuality and the historical accuracy or not. <laughs> I, I think it's perfectly pitched. We can kind of breathe a little because we know it's not totally accurate. Very true. Although it's interestingly that the odd pieces that you don't think would be accurate are accurate. Like, you know, the lemon in the vag is accurate and the the pissing on corn on, you know, is, is accurate. Think, I mean, odd little things like this are accurate. The roller coaster is accurate. Um, but I think more importantly, the thing that's always contained us is uh, it's a character-based story. Everything is about character. So when we're trawling through history, <laughs> looking to, to exploit it, um, we're always looking for the, for the story or the idea or the event that reflects our character and the themes that we're exploring in that season. So everything serves, everything is to the service of that, to the service of the character and the character is, you know, it's through the character we follow the idea and the theme and the sorts of ideas that we're, we're looking at. Um, so in that sense, there's always a criteria Exactly. And it's beautiful how it, it, there's this historical lens, but the, a contemporary lens too. And at the same time, we have these kind of larger than life political families or dynasties, and it makes us reflect upon all of that and the sexual politics. I mean, that's the advantage of historical pieces in the same way as I think science fiction gives you the same um, objectivity to a degree because you've got a you you can tell a story that has a distance to it because you say you know I don't live in that historical time I don't live on a spaceship I don't live in a but by by taking that world and by taking your characters slightly distance from a contemporary world you get the chance to do just that you can sort of throw a, a kind of frame or a lens on something that um, on an idea or a story or a theme that is harder sometimes to see when you're in the middle of a contemporary world where everybody recognizes all the elements around. That's the, one of the great advantages of history, provided, you know, if you're not too sl slavish. <laughs> but we are telling a story about a young girl who makes a bad decision, and, you know, marries the wrong man. So we are always very careful about keeping that perspective. You know, it is the perspective of a young, 20 something girl. It's not the perspective of someone my age or Tony's age or you know. So that's always interesting. And that's always challenging storytelling as well. 
say she's discovering her sexuality and the responsibilities. It's just in a bigger stage. Um, and I and yet I feel like you've brought the, the characters so close. So I feel like I, we can call them Catherine and Peter and just like it's like our mates down at the pub or something. Um, I think that's a wonderful approach that I've really appreciated. Um, if I might generalize it, Australian storytelling generally. I mean, I lived, I'm part Irish too. So I kind of feel like I come from the same kind of um, well, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. There's a rawness and a familiarity, and, and not afraid to share your thinking, and and that comes across well, very well in the storytelling. That's interesting. Well, yes, you're probably right. There is a sort of uh, directness. I mean, certainly one notices it when you're, you know, because Tony and I are obviously Australian, and we're working, and some of the other members of our team are Australian as well. So when you're working in England, which you know, we always think because we share this common language, you know, what's the phrase about separated by a common language? They're different. We have a tendency to a directness. And I always wondered when I saw, and even other work that Tony McNamara has done about royal households, that if people sometimes felt, oh, that is is exaggerated, as you say, but I felt that the other hand is like, what would you be like if you lived in this unreal world in a kind of confinement that only some of us are now experiencing now the last two years, but, yes. <laughs> but you'd be a little bit bonkers as well I mean just because everyone doesn't know about it and then there's the inbreeding involved there's just all this it's like a it's like a perfect uh, it's just a, a perfect uh, uh, stage for drama I think yes yeah, so one of our one of our sort of metaphors we hang on to is that the royal palace is a little bit like an apartment block you know everybody everybody lives in the palace and they've all got a little apartment in it so it's that sort of idea which is a very contemporary idea as well actually if you think about it you know you are all in this contained world and you don't go outside and you only meet each other, which gives you a little hothouse quality storytelling wise. You can throw characters together, you can throw ideas together. It's like a kind of stage. I always love the behind the scenes dramas, what goes behind the scenes in theatres. There's an added um, intimacy all the time yeah. there in history. And so tell us a little bit a bit. you discussed ab about the casting process and, and just about I mean, there's a lot of casting for, for writers, for um, costume design, and just all that selection process. And what, what was your Bible look like, your, your screenwriting Bible? We, um, we spent a lot of time casting all those areas. We're very, very particular. I think because we've, you know, been working in the business for a while and we kind of made some mistakes and made some, you know, good choices and things like that. So I think it's for us, it's very much about, we like to talk to people and it has been tricky with COVID in particular because you're on Zooms constantly. You're trying to, you know, however effective Zooms can be there, you're trying to read somebody in a very personal way. And it's it's not in a judgmental way so much as it's trying to understand, will we, will we get on with each other? Will we understand each other? Will we, do we respond to the world in a similar way? For instance, if we're looking at writers, we'll read a lot of material we'll sort of select the scripts that make sense to us, then we'll meet with them. We'll meet with them a couple of times um, and then we'll discuss it a lot. And we do that with the casting of actors as well. We, we met, we took a very long time to cast this show um, because, I mean, Tony comes out of theatre, obviously, and I've made quite a few feature films. It's, it's really just knowing that you don't have, you know, that you meet them, they seem right, they seem good, they seem an interesting interpretation of the character. 
then you meet them again and you meet someone else and that reflects slightly differently. You just keep, we spend a long time. And that's true for all the heads of department as well. And we should say, we haven't really discussed it, but it's also, I would say beautifully filmed, but I don't want to, I don't want to say it's like beautiful in the way that it, it never gets in the way of the story. It all no. just seems natural. And the camera work is just like, we're following them around. There's nothing too showy, but it, it's all there. No, it's very important to us that we don't notice the camera. You know, so there are obviously some, you know, there are moments when the, the cameraman and the director want to do something. And then we're always very cautious about that because you just don't ever want anything to, you don't want the audience to notice the camera. And in your research process, uh, because I find the stories uh, in a lot of strong female characters and, and very empowering, and yet, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to live in those situations and live in that period. Um, so I know there's certain liberties, but, you know, what is it, what does your research make you appreciate about these historical characters or women who just survived in those times? And, um, and what does it make you appreciate about, you know, opportunities now? Or, or just tell us a little bit about being a woman in, in cinema and television. That's a challenge too. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the thing that's, the thing that always strikes, there's a wonderful book um, that I had as a child, which was a, a sort of timeline. And it was kind of science, arts, politics, war, you know, discovery, exploration, those sort of things, all these different timelines. And it just went through all the centuries. And what was really striking about it was you didn't realize that they had invented, you know, something what you, that you thought was extremely contemporary, you know, in 1720. That's part of what's amazing about the research that we've done on Catherine is, is exactly that. The thing, the moments when they discovered things that you thought they wouldn't have discovered until later, that, and, then, and when they occurred, and then at the same time, things were occurring in politics, which were sort of heinous and barbaric. So it's that sort of, it's that juxtaposition and understanding how things sat sort of across the different timelines. That always intrigues me. I think childbirth, of course, is the single most decisive factor about being a woman then and being a woman now. I mean, I think what we don't realise is we would, I don't know whether you have children, but I have three, and I probably would be dead because I wouldn't have survived the first childbirth. And that sort of, that's, that's probably the single most decisive factor. You couldn't stop getting pregnant and childbirth was very likely to kill you. I think that's the sort of, you know, it, and Catherine, you know, she had more than one child, so she survived, survived that. So I always think it's that, that was the health is the thing that's most decisive. I think once you survived that, there were quite a few women in the court of Catherine who traveled Europe and who were quite extraordinarily effective and quite prominent in either literary or political circles throughout from through France and parts of Germany, as well as in Russia. Catherine worked with them when they came back to Russia. But I always think it's actually the health that was the most decisive. You would be dead. That's the thing that makes you very, very glad you're born now. This was written really before the pandemic and dealing with like uh, inoculation for smallpox and we're thinking about vaccinations. I know. I know. How prescient was that? <laughs> I mean, she was an absolute reformer in that area. I mean, the whole Scottish variolation idea was she did adopt it. And it would have been, um, you know, quite an extraordinary concept at the time. I mean, 
it's still considered quite an extraordinary concept. That was very prescient. We didn't know that yeah, at the time. What I was wondering was, as a producer, you're sort of involved in really every step of a project, all the way from casting and casting of the writers um, into distribution. I was wondering uh, whether there are parts of the process that you decide to take a more hands-on approach. Um, and conversely, if there are parts where you hope to give more responsibility to um, other people in the project? It depends on the team and it depends on the project. I mean, I go, it, it, my, my involvement starts earlier than the casting. I'm, it's usually my idea. So I've either optioned to play or I've uh, optioned a book or I've come up with an idea and I've hired a writer. So it depends. And at certain process and certain parts of the process, you will have more involvement than not. I mean, the most difficult part of the process is development. It is just, just the hardest thing in the world, development, because you're coming up with the idea, you're working with the writer and or the director, depending on whether it's a film or a TV type project. And you don't know, you lose your way and it doesn't work and you get a draft and you don't know why it's not working. And you get into these sort of, funks of you know oh god you know it's never going to work what was I thinking <laughs> we're never going to solve it and there's a little part of me which is sort of a good thing and a bad thing and I think it's common to quite a lot of producers which is I just won't give up and sometimes that just not giving up is not a good thing because you keep pursuing a project and pursuing it thinking that there will be a solution to it you know what, maybe there isn't a solution to it. And learning when to say, you know what, there's no solution to this. I'm just going to move on. I'm not going to pursue it anymore. I mean, then you get a project like The Great where I never lost faith and I could always see what it was. I could always understand what it was um, and why I thought there would be an audience for it. So, and just to go back to your original question. So sometimes directors are not so good with casting. Sometimes directors are not so good with writing development. Um, sometimes, you know, the financing takes longer and you get distracted by that and you have to, you know, because if you don't have the money, you don't have anything. So you have to spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, so again, it very much depends on the strengths and weaknesses of your team, where and how much you put into some. I mean, producers tend to be jack of all trades or jills of all trade. You need to be able to understand at least each part of the process, even if you don't feel that's your strength. Development is incredibly hard. Casting is really, really hard because it's that process of looking at somebody and you've got to just detach from whether you like them or not and whether and decide whether they're right for the role or not, which is a sort of separation of your natural human instinct. Your human instinct is to judge, is this person dangerous for me or not? I mean, a basic biological sense. Or, you know, do I like them? Do I not like them? Are they... But that's one thing. But you're also trying to decide whether they're going to make a great bad guy. So in a way, or they're going to make an ambiguous character. Or are they going to make a, how are they, are they going to be able to deliver on the comedy and the nuance? Or are they too obvious a choice? Are they too ambiguous a choice? You know, so you're separating your personal response to somebody from what the character is asking for. And the worst thing in the world is to cast the romantic leads because Every man chooses the woman that he most fancies and every woman chooses the man she most fancies. It's very hard not to cast the romantic lead as somebody that you find attractive, not necessarily who your characters would find attractive. So that's always, that's always an interesting one. People spend hours casting romantic leads. It's a nightmare. 
that's the right word. It's, it's part of the team, what the strength and weakness of your team is, and it's part of where you are in the process. Sometimes casting is the only thing that matters. Sometimes development is the only thing that matters. Sometimes financing, sometimes marketing. You must always be thinking about marketing that. Why does anyone, who's the audience? Who's going to want to see this? And why are they going to want to see this? And how am I going to tell them about it? So those sort of ideas are all where you should always be collecting. I'm constantly sending Hulu little ideas for marketing. When we were doing the baby shower, I took photographs of all the characters in their ridiculous outfits. And I thought you could do a calendar, you know, Mr. July, Miss August, you know, of them dressed in these things. So it's that marketing thing. You have to always be thinking about why will anyone want to go and see it? How am I going to get them to go and see it? Yeah, and I think that this role of producer is isn't so understood or even casting director. And I guess maybe in your role, it's been more overlap, like you're a producer taking on a, a lot of these roles. Sometimes it's separated. Yes. There's a big difference between independent filmmaking and studio filmmaking. So I come from an independent filmmaking world. Australia is, is an independent independent cinema. So we make small one-off films, which uh, we, struggle, we struggle to finance and we you know, they don't necessarily travel very far, quite a lot of them, but it's a very different world and you have to be, to do all of those things in that world. But in the studio system, it's slightly different. This is the first television show I've done, The the Great. So it was a steep learning curve. I did actually originally propose a slightly different structure because I come from the independent world. But the the other uh, executive producers I was working with who were sort of Tony's managers and Elle Fanning's managers and agents. So they were uh, wanted to work within the, the Hollywood system. So that's the way we went in the end. But um, it's so it is a slightly different deal making because you're in a sense working for a studio rather than it's not my production company. So whereas everything else I do, I do through my production company and I do the I do the financing deals and things like that. This is slightly different. Um, So the other projects that I've got, the other television projects, for instance, I've got two other, three other projects which I'm doing and they are working with small studios. And in fact, one case, a big studio, Um, but I'm working with them as a partner rather than as a individual gun for hire, which is sort of how it works on on the grade. So it's, but I've learned, you know, I've learned a lot through doing this one, this particular uh, experience as to how to do ones in the future. Well, it's so nice then that you have trusted longtime collaborators I mean, and those that you're new that you haven't worked with before. But that's nice to because um, you can feel the heart in something when you know you've been working a long time with people. Yes, Tony and I. We have a, a, a good working relationship, you know, sort of. I think it's, you know, it, we, we also, well, one of our other critical questions, Tony and I love to eat. We love to go to restaurants and we love good wine and good coffee. So one of our things is that we're always sort of looking for people who like to, who like to cook and we love to cook. We love to cook and to, you know, go to restaurants and things like that. So there's a lot of, um, and we've known each other and our children have grown up together and things like that. So there's a lot of... Um, familiarity and yeah understanding there's a lot of good food in the grate as well I don't mean to say but it made me hungry a lot it was interesting because I have a a chef friend and he kept saying you must be working with a consultant and we said no no (laughs) it's just it's just we love food 
I was wondering uh, which elements of an artwork you see as, as motivated by thematic concerns and which elements are more motivated by your collaboration and the people that you're working with? I have to say that I'm probably more character-based than thematically based to a degree. So what I would say is that I choose projects probably at their core because of the characters and the character's journey. So who is this person? Why do they make that choice? Uh, so for instance, one of the projects that I'm developing, which is still at very early sort of storyline stage, it's about sort of, it's three stories or rather two stories originally that I've, I've known about for a long time, you know, and they're really uh, stories about women who make bad decisions and what happens to them as a result of that. So it's not that they're bad people, it's that they've made this choice and they can't get out of it. So what fascinates me about that is why, what is it that's, that's made this person make this particular choice? You know, to, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, that sort of idea. So very often it's character, it's just character, but it needs to have an ideology or something for that character, for that to make sense. Otherwise it's not gonna have enough legs it's just not going to have enough sort of meat on its bones to keep you going. Sometimes I have to be careful because I'll get fascinated by a very small thing in a story. And then I realize it's not necessarily the best realization of that idea. So I remember somebody, I was pursuing this idea, which I thought was fascinating. I just thought it was really odd and unique and unusual. And then somebody turned around to me and said, I can see why you like it. You, you are seeing the best possible version of that idea and your team is not going to deliver it. And it was just like a bolt of lightning. I thought, he's absolutely right. It is a great idea, but this team is never going to realize it. So I'm better just to go, that's a great idea and move on, And which is what I did. I was quite one of those things where, you know, I'm quite a smart person. So when somebody says something that you haven't seen yourself, you go, why didn't, I, why didn't I see that? But I would say that as a piece of advice, be careful. However good the idea is, make sure that the practitioners and the team the best possible team to realize it but that's probably it is it's character then idea character then idea it's interesting that you say that about seeing the best possible I think that that it seems like that's a mistake we could uh, apply to our, our love life sometimes we see the best possible version and we're going to we're going to save it so I guess the experience of you know being a producer for many years is you just get better at spotting you know you do you do. Is this the best possible version? I mean, this is the best possible version of the idea. Is this the team that's going to put it together? And or is this the format that will realise it? I mean, it's the other sort of famous adage, which is if it doesn't work on the page, it won't work when you've shot it and it won't work in the edit. So you're better off to solve it on the page because it's the that's the cheapest way to do it apart from anything else. But just filming it won't make it any better and cutting it won't make it any better. It still doesn't work. You know, my other sort of sort of project-oriented advice would be we tend to deceive ourselves. Otherwise, you can't, you have to be sort of vaguely delusional to keep going because everything tells you that it shouldn't work because most of the time it doesn't work. So you have to kind of try and keep a balance. Your, your delusion is important. Otherwise, you can't keep going. But you have to balance the degree of delusion with as much reality as you can. But as you say, that's a sort of a finessing that occurs as you become more experienced, I think. In filmmaking, no measure of talent is ever so well rewarded as curiosity. On a basic level, the craft is rooted in an empathetic observation of human behavior. 
It is not enough to merely describe the actions of a character or a series of events. Assessment of a person's motivations, goals, and objectives must result in a degree of identification for a work to really hit home. Misanthropy is a non-starter. Sitting down with Marion McGowan, I was reminded of the sorts of personalities which initially drew me to cinema. The enthusiasm with which she described her project immediately revealed her fundamental respect for her collaborators, her principal characters, and even her interviewers. The patience and candor with which she responded to our questions deepened my already thorough respect for her work. In my own experience producing student films, I have tried to emulate the sort of energetic sincerity. In my work on a short documentary project, introducing the concept of cooperative housing in the context of college towns, I was totally reliant on the residents and my collaborators for access to space, time, and their creative input. Getting to know people for who they really were helped me to understand their skill sets and coordinate my own involvement. By maintaining a curiosity and openness about my collaborators' contributions, I was able to participate in decision-making without bossing anyone around. Something which really surprised me during my interview with McGowan was how much hands-on involvement she had in her independent projects. As a student filmmaker, I was personally responsible for everything in my film, from writing to scheduling to technical details. Although the chaos of this approach snapped at my heels, the whirlwind was exciting and creatively stimulating. Compared with the degree of specialization which is typical of Hollywood studios, the eccentricity of McGowan's production company really appeals to me. Going forward, I hope to be able to incorporate something of McGowan's character-driven storytelling into my own work. Her acute observations of people's skills, attitudes, and shortcomings make for rich and subtle characters who act as the lifeblood of the stories they inhabit. I look forward to learning more about these characters in her future works, starting with the newly announced Season 3 of The Great. And now, back to the interview. You know, you worked with some of the the best and uh, Australian talent before they became, you know, exploded onto the international scene. Just mm. tell us about some of those early discoveries. Say, you know, are working with Heath Ledger or Rose Byrne or Tony Collette, and and what that process is like. You're always lucky if a good actor wants to do your film, whoever they are. I have to say because it's it speaks to the quality of this of the script or the director or sort of the whole the whole sort of idea that you're propagating um I mean Heath was a this was the he, the two hands which was the film that Heath um did for us um this was his first starring role he had been in a, a film prior to that called Black Rock but he played a much smaller role if that was one of those wonderful things coming together beautifully which was that the the character in that story was Heath in a way it was almost like Gregor Jordan the writer director had written it for him in a way, but he was perfect. He had all the right. The thing that both Heath and Rose in that film, Rose Byrne had in that film was a kind of natural innocence, um, which allowed them to deliver the comic tone that that script had. He was a, you know, he was a charming young man. He was a charming young man to work with. I do remember he struggled with the crying scene. We had to have a lot of um, preparation. He, he cries in one scene towards the end of the film. And I, I think he struggled to, 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 to realise that particular scene. Uh, and Rose, we did, Tony and I, Tony and I then did a film with Rose subsequent to that. She's a, a, a absolutely wonderful screwball comedian. I mean, she's just so gifted, so gifted. And she also does... She also does pratfalls. She's quite clumsy, so she she just falls over. 
And it's just, there's, I don't know whether you've ever seen Bringing Up Baby where Catherine Hepburn does Pratt Falls as well. And I have to say, there's nothing funny than a beautiful woman, preferably beautifully dressed, falling over. It's just, it's just makes you laugh. I just, and Rose does that beautifully. That, and she's a wonderful mimic, you know, she does a wonderful, she's a wonderful mimic. So, um, no, they were, I think you, you, I don't know whether you know that they're going to go on to amazing careers, but they did. And Tony was very similar. She was um, very brave. We did a film, she did my very first feature film called Lillian's Story, which is an adaptation of a, a, an award-winning uh, book here, which was a very unusual piece, um, a very unusual story. And again, entirely character-based is why I chose it, I think, and tonal, tonally. And I met my husband, he wrote the screenplay. Um, but she was, she was one. I mean, she's just, I think, an extraordinary actress. You just have to put a camera on her and you just watch the emotions wash over her face and very few actors can do it as beautifully as she can it's extraordinary oh yes wonderful I don't want to say vulnerability but yeah it seems like uh openness like, it's just so open you know she just it just washes over her face and go I know exactly what she's feeling yeah you get you she brings you in you never see the craft you never see the craft you just see the the character there are a lot of exceptional actors but you do what you are watching quite a lot of the time is craft but not with her her you just see the character I think she's extraordinary yes and also sometimes you're are you drawn to sometimes misfits kind of eccentric kind of characters as well why did you fall in love with these stories or is it just a lot of characters like that in Australia <laughs> oh no no I don't think there are I, I I do like characters who I think in a sense I like characters who are misfits who make odd choices or appear to be making odd choices I think that's probably that's always going to I mean if you take the sort of for want of a better word the artist's voice it's always an expression of self that has no other way to express itself in a way so people write or perform and it's the part of them that doesn't have an expression in their normal life in their normal world and I suppose that's what this is. It's an expression of the part of me that is the misfit. The part of me that always sort of, I don't know whether you know the Enneagram idea, you know, the judge, the observer, the, you know, all those sorts of things. Well, I'm always the observer. And I think it's that person who watches the world and the characters. And, and I think these misfits are the characters that I'm watching most because they're the ones that make most, the ones that I'm most curious about. How are you going to deal with this? How are you going to, how are you going to navigate this? How are you going to navigate life if this is how you see it or if you if you feel like the outsider or the observer then how are you going to navigate how are you going to observe cope with life make those decisions i think that we are always curious because what the misfit does is it provides a mirror it's kind of like maybe even a funhouse mirror but it helps us see yeah. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, it's, that's almost that Venn diagram idea. You know, you, there's a little bit of me that is like that. Therefore I, but I'm also, one of the things that I'm always fascinated with story is the way in which it allows the audience to understand somebody who would otherwise make no sense to them. So whether it's taking you to a world that they don't, that you don't necessarily recognize or a character or an experience or a, a job or a, a you know community or whatever it might be that's that's always I think the great gift when it's you watch a film and you go oh now I understand I have a sense of who that character in that world is that's a great joy of storytelling I think
And so I'm wondering what you are like, because if you say like now you're an observer, like were you a little observer? And how did that, you know, how did you recognize the little producer inside of you? I think that I was always, I come from a very odd family. I started off knowing that my family wasn't like most people's families. I think they sort of slightly prided themselves on their eccentricity or their oddities. So you were always, I was always trying to be, at school, I would try to be the normal, you know, as normal as I possibly could be. You know, and I liked school because it was predictable, you know, whereas home was not predictable. You know, you could do good things and be punished or you could do good things and not be punished. And, you know, so it was all sorts of strange things. So I think from the beginning, I was always in that observer position, you know. I left Australia and went to university in England when I was 18. So I the first chance I had to go away I went away and that immediately placed me in another world as a foreigner and as a strange you know that sort of thing so I think I just sought out ways to I actually never thought about it before interesting question <laughs> interesting question I remember watching these two deaf people have a fight on the bus in sign language and it took me it took me a while to work it out I was just thinking they were so animated with their sign language I was just thinking what then I realized they were having a domestic on the bus in sign language and I thought there's a scene you could use that you could use that that's a that's a great opening scene <laughs> or in, a, in an elevator listen in an elevator it's a sort of public space that's contained and you're and I'm just thinking they do oh I see and then she got in a huff you know and she did because the body language was the same even though they weren't talking you know I'm going to give you the silent treatment (laughs) just like like always (laughs) I'm not talking to you (laughs) do you and this is just another thing I'm always fascinated by that and and the different senses like which sense you would give up if you had to but do you I always wish I could read lips yeah. Do you read lips? No, I don't. But I agree with you. I'd love to read lips. I've got to, I got. To, I should have done this during the pandemic. I just learned how to read lips. Everyone's yeah. learning a language. Yeah. I want. Like, can you imagine how useful that would be? You could watch people over there. I mean, I, I, yeah, it seems an inexact science to me. But there you go. I'm sure it's. You know, they must be able to. You know, people must be able to do it. Because you can I, sort I of think- when you watch a badly dubbed movie, you can tell. Because you do, yeah, their minds are going in different directions. Well, it makes me reflect on this. And it's just, I think it is applicable to the, the arts and to cinema too, because so much of that is non-verbal. Not, it's, it's a communication, but it's without words, but sometimes. Um, so I do wonder about sometimes people say that they would, which senses they might give up, you know, if they had to give up one, you know, throw, throw one away and... Um, I wonder what cinema makers or filmmakers, which of those senses do you value the most? I give up speech. Because I think if you can see and hear, you can always, you know, that's the one I would. I I think so too. I might, I know even though it's a bit of a sacrilege, you love food, I might give up, wait, smell, smell, not taste, smell maybe. But if you lose the taste sense of smell, you don't taste things as well because the two things are so intimately connected. 
Yeah, but I'm just trying to, you know, if I could, if I could have that one, that would probably because there's some things anyway, I know this is off point, but it's, it does make you kind of concentrate. And I wonder also in the editing process, because maybe when you watch things, and you know, you're going over the scenes, you kind of can look at it without sound, or you can look at it, or just to the sound. If you really want to check, I will often, yeah, sometimes I'll absolutely do, but I'll do it a lot in auditions, actually, um, particularly given that they're always doing doing the same thing so it's not like you don't know the words but if you really want to judge I find if I really want to judge somebody's performance I turn the sound off because you can you, then you're forced to read what they're communicating and it is a visual medium so even though Tony's work is all about the words and the rhythm of the language um, and the rhythm of the scene sometimes it, in auditions I do do that you and I'll do it in Russian I'll do it in Russia's too sometimes if you're trying to decide which you know if they got the scene is why is this not working I'll watch the rushes without sound you can see the false notes right away see the false notes right away yeah um I did have uh one last question and oh. just given um how much you've spoken about how your works are motivated by character but also um you've spoken with great tenderness about real people in your life um, and I was wondering, um, what are some things you keep in mind when you're first meeting people? Uh, and what helps you decide whether you can work with them or um, like what sticks out to you, I suppose? Um, I do, oddly enough, um, as somebody who's quite word -based, verbally based, I, it, the eyes, you know, if they look you in the eye, they talk directly to you. Um, this, yeah, that it's a lot about the eyes. I think it's a lot about the eyes. So they look at you and hold your gaze and almost the sense that they are, they are assessing you to the same degree that you're assessing them. You know what I mean? So that they're, you know, they're just, there's a truth there. You know, there's a truth there. You know, and if people say stupid, well, people say wanky things, then they're probably a wanky person, I don't know. Yeah, so the, the Zoom is harder because it's much harder to read somebody and you're at a distance from them. Um, and yeah, it's, it's easier to be distracted by when you're on a Zoom, but in the flesh, I just like to watch them. You know, how do they sit? Where, do they look me in the eye? Do they, um, are they listening to what I'm saying? Um, how do they, yeah, how do they choose to tone of voice, things like that, very much, yeah. And it's also because most people are, I mean, it's very hard not to be nervous. I mean, you're quite nervous at the moment, I can tell, um, which is fine, I completely understand. So what I'm also trying to do is keep them talking. That's sort of one of the things, when Tony and I do things together, I see my job very much as just to keep them talking. It doesn't matter what we're talking about, really. I want to keep them talking so they calm down, so they start to be who they really are. And you get a real sense of that. You know, even if you're just discussing the weather or where they are or how they deal with lockdown or anything to keep them talking. So that's, that's another thing I do quite a lot of because the more they talk, the more they kind of have to relax a bit. Yeah. It's nerve-wracking. I, I think <laughs> I think that it's very you're very instinctive you'd have to be a very instinctive person and um, some people are afraid to 
you know reveal their real rhythm but yeah it's a bit like it's a tuning in and trying to kind of breathe almost in the same breath and i like this expression like when the musicians know each other very well like they can just play themselves like yeah, yeah they don't even you almost don't even need a conductor or whatever you just like play yourselves um okay. it's great to you know get to that shorthand like you and tony have and your your, your extended artistic family that I don't entirely know. So I guess, you know, in closing, you know, this is an arts educational initiative. And so we, we think about, you know, as you reflect on the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, as you reflect on the teachers that were important to you or collaborators, um, you know, what were some of those important lessons for your teachers and uh, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, good heavens, uh, that's daunting. Um, I think probably what you just said, you want, as a sort of filmmaker, what you are selling and your primary asset is yourself. So the clearer you are about yourself, the clearer you can play yourself as you've just described it, the more effective you're going to be in, in, in expressing the ideas that you're particularly gifted to do. So that, that clarity of voice is as important for a writer or a director or a producer as it is for a performer or a musician or anybody else. So my, the, the goal is exactly that. Um, you want to find your best, the best version of yourself. Just to go back to my earlier comment, what you want is the best version of yourself. And that is about recognizing when those moments of clarity are there and when they're not and when you're being you know the the other sort of thing i've learned as a producer is um is to make decisions and making the decision you have to follow your instincts to make those decisions the only bad decisions i've ever made are the ones where i've gone against my instinct so that's in the same vein of clarity of who you are and 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 how you best express yourself Thank you, Marion McGowan, for bringing to the screen human stories full of humor and complexity and strong female characters that help us understand historical experiences and what it means to love and to survive in today's world. Thank you for your important contributions to cinematic storytelling. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Aidan Mirza. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.